FYI, this podcast contains spoilers. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 79 of the podcast that goes nicked. I'm your host, Jason. I like using my hands, Venable, and... Well, maybe I shouldn't have used that nickname since I'm about to tell you that I'm by myself. <laughs> A poor choice of nickname for my lonely, flying solo flashback episode of the podcast that goes nicked. Yeah, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm flying solo tonight. Basically, we're just going to cover one quick issue of Uncanny. And we're going to do kind of a slew of guest spots that Wolverine appears in with some of his uh, X-Men teammates. So we'll look at those. Uh, nothing of much import really happens in these. There's some decent stories, though. So anyway, without much ado, um, here we go. Okay, so first up we have Uncanny X-Men number 144. Even in death, dot, dot, dot. Or maybe dun, dun, dun. Maybe those dots are duns. I don't know. This, of course, is written by Chris Claremont. And uh, we have Brent Anderson as a guest penciler. Taking over with the John Burns absence. We have Joseph Rubenstein as the inker. Glennis Wine is the colorist. Tom Orzjakowski is the letterer. And we have a cover. Oh, it's Brent Anderson. And basically we have a guy who's pink. He looks like he's wearing a, like a mask. And he's got a burning man thing. I'm sorry, the macabre man thing on fire in one palm. And Cyclops is there shooting his optic blast at the guy's forehead. Looks like he has a big giant zit exploding on his forehead. I will say Cyclops' pose is pretty cool. The cover has some cool elements. I can't really decide if I like it or not. It's not badly drawn at all. You know, it's pretty good, I guess. Yes, it's not a bad cover. So basically, our short version, we'll stick with our summary. So Jack Forrester has terminal cancer, and he goes to a swamp to uh, hang out with the man thing, and a demon named Despair makes him kill himself and takes his form. Cyclops is working on a boat with Lee, who is Jock's, I think I said Jack, is Jock Forrester. Of course, Lee is, Forrester is Jock's daughter, and her's Cyclops are getting kind of chummy. We switch over to the X-Mansion where the X-Men are picking up where we left off in issue 143. And they're cleaning up uh, Kitty's mess in the danger room. Uh, Wolverine and Nightcrawler give Kitty a really hard time and she gets really upset. And the good thing about Kitty, when she wants to storm out, she can literally phase through the wall. <laughs> so back to uh, Cyclops. Uh, Scott goes home with Lee to because uh, her dad's in trouble. Uh, they're falling hard for each other, but Scott is uh, pretty hesitant. 
I mean, obviously, he left the X-Men to mourn or figure out his life after mourning for Jean Grey, so he's not going to want to immediately jump into Lee's loving embrace, but we'll see. But it turns out, we find out, of course, we knew that Jock, Lee's dad, is really despair, and he uses demon magic to make Scott relive his worst nightmares, but through his love for Jean, Scott realizes that he has fear Yes, but he also has hope, and therefore he does not have despair. So he and Man-Thing are then able to defeat despair. The end. <laughs> so I will say the first page is super cool. It looks very noirish. So kudos to Brent Anderson on a great opening splash page. It's got Jock basically sitting in the swamp and it's raining, and he's smoking a cigarette, and he's got a suitcase, and he's... Apparently, he put his wallet on the mud for some reason. Then we have the man thing kind of skulking in the shadows towards him. It just, it looks really cool. And kudos on uh, Glennis Wine. The colors in this book are pretty good. I mean, they usually are with her. She had a late 70s, early 80s coloring down pretty pat. So, good job to her. And we get back to the danger room on uh, page 7. Of course, Wolverine's job in while cleaning up the danger room, is to use his claws to cut up uh, broken machinery. <laughs> I mean, what else would his job be, right? Yeah, so ex-bullies. Wolverine and Nightcrawler really stick it to a kitty, calling her a tiny teen terror. And Wolverine says, That's all right, we'll just take the damages out of your allowance. You should have things paid off in four or five centuries. <laughs> so they're going to be a mean. I, I don't think they mean it to be mean but of course kitty is even more sensitive than she was at the end of the last issue that's kind of bizarre but i guess she's had time to think on it but she's worried that the x-men are all mad at her and don't trust her even though she defeated this demon all, all on her own so then we when we go back to scott they're at a bar when uh lee's dad calls and scott's trying to find ways to kind of sneak in optic blast practice where no one sees him uh, he decides to use it to be a pool shark. So everybody, apparently there's a big play on the football game at the bar. Everybody runs over while Scott's turn to shoot pool. And while he's while they're gone, he uses his optic blast, a very focused version, to sink every ball with one shot. So there you go. There's that. And at least the second time since Wolverine's come along. It may have happened before. But at least the second time that we've been reading here on the podcast that gets nicked, where Scott is a master of geometry. Of course, remember he took out all the bumper cars in Arcade's murder world with one shot by bouncing his blast around. So, kid should have been a math major. Who knew? I will say, it's weird when Lee and Scott get to her house. She's looked pretty normal in the way John Byrne introduced her. But the moment she, like, goat runs up and gives her dad her hug, a hug, she looks like a teenage girl. Very strange. Just the way, the drawing choice there. We do get a flashback to Scott's parents during his uh, worst nightmare section. I don't know if we saw this before Wolverine came along, but this is the first time we've seen it since. And I tried Googling in Wikipedia, and I'm not really sure what I came up with, but I think this might be the first time we see it at all, maybe, but don't quote me on that. Anyway, uh, for those of you who don't know, it's basically the story of, of Scott's parents. And they're in the plane. The plane's called the Mosquito. <laughs> basically, just, just tempting God to swat it out of the sky. But of course, they get attacked by a Shi'ar spaceship. But they don't know it's a Shi'ar spaceship. They just know their plane's messing up. 
And there's only one parachute. So while the plane's on fire, Scott's mom straps the parachute on Scott and makes him hug his brother, little brother Alex and throws him out the airplane. So they survive, but their parents die. Of course, we find out later they're adopted by the Shi'ar. Christopher Summers, the dad, becomes Corsair. His mom dies in outer space. You know, all that stuff. But yeah, so we get some cool stuff there. There's a thing Brent Anderson does with his paneling where he kind of like, in one panel, will break it up like in, in smaller panels and put words between them that way. So what would normally be a panel and have maybe text on top, he puts the text like between it. Does that a couple of times. It looks pretty cool. So <laughs> in super dumb comic book way, Scott kind of strategizes or makes a strategy on how to beat despair. He's clued in by the guy's name. He's like, hmm, the demon despair must be feeding off my despair. But I don't have despair. <laughs> anyway, that's pretty dumb. So yeah, the art is really good in places. Uh, it's not bad overall. There's some panels and pages that are really, really good and some that are just kind of okay. But overall, I would say the art is good overall. Like I said, the colors particularly stand out in this book. The story is uh, pretty dumb. Um, the flashback with Cyclops is cool. And actually, the message overall of the power of love. <laughs> That's the power of love. But no, but the message of balancing hope and fear together and that, that you don't succumb to utter despair. Like, it's a good message. It's just kind of a dumb story and a really dumb villain. So all that said, I'm going to give Uncanny X-Men number 144 two out of six claws. Okay, so the next place that Wolverine pops up is going to be in ROM number 17 and 18. I'll kind of treat this all as one big story because that's kind of what it is. ROM 17 is written by Bill Mantlo with art by Sal Basima. Michael Higgins does the letters. Ben Sean is the colorist. I thought it was interesting that Chris Claremont was uh, credited as a consultant on 17. And then on 18... He's uh, credited with Joe Duffy as inspiration and assistance. I will say on 18, there's a different inker. It's, I have no idea how to say this guy's name. G-I-A-C-O-I-A. All right, so our first cover on 17 is Frank Miller, inked by Al Milgram. We have Rom has fallen through the roof of a house, and he's in the living room, which is all tinted green, and he's grabbing a little kid, in a onesie pajamas, or footy pajamas. And the X-Men are trying to save the kid, it looks like. Uh, Wolverine is slicing Rom on the back shoulder, kind of jumping over him, and he's grabbing... You know, all right, so if you don't know, Rom is based on a toy, Rom Space Knight. And basically, Marvel took the toy and was kind of hired to give it backstory, and then they decided to turn that into a comic book. So it's kind of a, a weird kind of comic to have, and I've never really read much of it. So it's kind of my first foray into ROM. All that to say, so he has this gun thing that looks like a cheap toy. <laughs> so I thought that was really funny, but this is a pretty cool cover. Number 18 I like a little bit better. It is also by Frank Miller, but inked by Terry Austin. Of course, he's probably one of the best inkers of all time. But it's Wolverine fighting some kind of creature in a snowstorm. And um, Rom is shooting at it. 
uh, Nightcrawler and Colossus are behind him, and then Storm looks really cool. And the contrast of her like black cape against the uh, the snow looks pretty freaking awesome. And then like she has her wild white hair, but her face is completely in shadow except for her eyes. It just it looks really really cool. I'm actually gonna make part of this my uh, Twitter. Um, oh, what do you call that? Avatar. Yeah, my Twitter avatar for, for a little bit. If you're listening to this when it comes out, you should be able to check that out if you haven't seen the cover. And of course, you can always Google it. Yeah, I think, I think this is a really fantastic cover. All right, so basically our story is that the X-Men are at the mansion and they get called into the Cerebro room. But Professor X has detected a new mutant and he's going to send the X-Men to figure it out. And we go to a small Virginia farm or town of farming community and it's in the winter and the family doctor has come to visit a family and the wife has aged like a hundred years overnight and the dad reveals to him that he is not a human but a changeling and he says i know what caused what did this to my wife and he opens the door to his son's room and all we see is we see the smell like in scooby-doo or looney tunes like a little little smoke that runs by the guy's face and nose. We get a voice. Hello, doctor. Have you come to play with me? And the doctor is horrified and he runs out. And the dad is mad. He says, couldn't you at least let the doctor help your mom? He's like, no, I had to punish you both. All right, so then we find out that the community, apparently Rom has been here for a little while. And his mission, he's sent to Earth, or has come to Earth, to funnel out the wraith, the dire wraiths who are shapeshifters and they're kind of hidden among humans and they're going to take over the world and then eventually the universe. And so Rob's being proactive. I guess he's fought them in space before, but he also wants to uh, keep them from coming to his planet. So he's going to come get them on Earth. thought that was awfully nice of him. He's a good neighbor. (laughs) Anyway, so apparently in this town, he's found a bunch of them and, and killed them. And originally, of course, the town misunderstood and thought he was killing their citizens. But they were all aliens. And he convinces them because they all turn to dust. And we go to a wedding and there's two grooms. And one of them shoots the other one and turns to dust. And he says, I escaped just in time to keep my fiance from marrying a horrible alien. So anyway, there's that. <laughs> And so I guess somehow the wraith, the dire race, they say, they call them dire race, but then they drop the dire after about one page. So the wraiths are, um, apparently they've, they've integrated into this community and like falsified records and stuff. And Rom and the, the, I guess, town lawyer are looking over the records and all these that were falsified have, have died at Rom's hand or are missing, except for Jacob Marks. The, the the farmer on the edge of town. So Rob takes the commu- the people there. Uh, they they leave their pitchforks and torches at home for some reason. They go there and the husband says, "Nope, I'll sh- you don't have to scan me. I'll show you." Oh, so Rom can only he can see the wraith because he has an energy scanner and his eye pieces, so he can see them for what they really are and not the shape they take. But Jacob's like, "No, don't you don't worry about it. Just help my wife. She needs help. I'm a wraith. See, look." <laughs> He kind of tells this story that he was part of the Wraith fleet when he crashed on Earth before anybody else. And he, people were scared of him and he just learned to blend in. But then he actually liked being a human and didn't want to serve the Wraith anymore. And he fell in love and had a baby. But then the Wraith, the rest of the race showed up later and said, Ah, you can't hide from us. We must fulfill our purpose. And so they want to go talk to the kid. 
and they start teaching the kid how to be evil and how to use his powers. And because he's a hybrid, he's a cross between a wraith and a human, he has extra powers. And so he punishes his parents because his dad doesn't want the wraith to keep coming, but he wants to be evil. And so Rom's going to confront the kid, and he turns into his true form, which is pretty awful looking, but pretty cool. There's a big fight, and he has really strong uh, telepathic and telekinetic, like psychic powers and psionic powers. He kills his dad with a pitchfork. He stabs it with him through the air. Rom continues to fight him. They're tearing the house apart. Rom's trying to use his gun that banishes the wraith to limbo, but it won't work on this guy. And he says he's going to kill him, but he turns around and the guy's turned back into a kid because the X-Men showed up. The X-Men think that Rom is the mutant and he's trying to kill this family and this little kid. So they're going to fight him. That's where, we, that's where we end that cliffhanger in 17. And we move right into 18. And the X-Men are going to protect this kid from Rom. And Wolverine can't wait to test his adamantium claws on this metal tin suit that Rom wears. So the X-Men are fighting Storm. Um, creates a little mini hurricane, but it gets out of her control. And she senses something is wrong. Like somebody else is controlling it. And Wolverine's attacking Rom, but he's holding back because he smells evil, but it's not coming from Rom. He doesn't really know what's going on. And then in the confusion, uh, the kid shows his true form and tries to get Kitty. But Rom kind of surprises him. Kitty phases through and kind of short circuits Rom. Kind of first we get to that. Uh, so the X-Men keep fighting. Hybrid reaches into Colossus's head and makes him unarmor. Like flips the switch for him. Wolverine is still fighting Rom for some reason. He hasn't he hasn't been caught up to speed. And then Kitty tells him, and they try to decide they have to use Rom's gun. Wolverine tries to use it, but it fries him because it's not meant for humans. And Kitty is able to use it. Because for the same, whatever with her molecules that messed up Rom's suit allows her to, to use the gun. And it's kind of working, but it's not at full blast. Rom needs her to turn it to full blast. So she does as Rom tackles the alien and it hits them both, dispersing hybrid to limbo, but also leaving the gateway open so Rom falls into limbo. And Kitty thinks she killed Rom on accident while she tried to get rid of the alien. But they leave. And strangely enough, they leave the gun there. And our last page is a full page of Rom floating in limbo. Right? So, um, a couple of weird things. Um, so on page one of issue 17, uh, Nightcrawler, Bill Mantler is trying to, uh, uses authentic German. And he says, Boss ist Storm. Well, really, it should be, uh, Boss ist S. Like, what is Storm? Doesn't really make sense. But, um, are we really, uh... We really use the whole Claremont consulting job because there's they run into the uh, danger room. Colossus is like, oh, a new mutant. Maybe Banshee's powers have returned, you know, because they were out. And um, we get a definition of Cerebro. We get a status of Sprite, that she's a fledgling new mutant. Wolverine's fins look kind of like Rob Liefeld might have designed them. And they, they're pointy on the top and the bottom, so they kind of hang down off his face too. But just in this first panel, that goes away very quickly. And it says, the five mutants, for that is what they are. Like, what, these five mutants that you're showing us on the page? And apparently, uh, I do like that the Mentlo actually spells out that part of the reason the X-Men exist is to contact new mutants. That was kind of cool. Kind of a succinct mission statement. We've had uh, 
Xavier, of course, sending out team recruiting teams, but it's cool to actually say this is like part of our mission statement. I don't know, it just it rang true with me. I thought it was cool. We get a snick when we should get a snacked. Actually, just a snick with no tea. But Professor X tells Wolverine to sheathe his claws because we don't know if he's a good guy or a bad guy. Like, they haven't even gone anywhere yet. Wolverine's like, ah, snick, snick. He must be off. It must be a bad mutant if he's new. Let's go cut him up. There's a reference to Magneto that he's the one trying to get there first because, you know, don't worry about the Hellfire Club where we've actually had that story. Then uh, Mantlo makes a weird, like, preachy statement about because this doctor makes house calls, and he basically says this is the last doctor on Earth that still makes house calls. That was kind of weird and soapboxy and not necessarily true. I thought of when it, when it talks about only Rom can see the aliens, I thought of that movie They Live with, um, isn't Rowdy Roddy Piper in that, I think? Yeah, it's a movie, it's an old 80s movie uh, called They Live, and he gets like these glasses, and he can see he's really an alien or not. It's got this massive fight scene, like a wrestling scene. It's pretty insane. Anyway, Rom's little alien vision reminded me of that. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and for a guy with no mouth, Rom is extra chatty. Guy likes to talk. So, step two of alien in- invasion, forge birth records. You know, we see that in all the classic sci-fi. <laughs> Because, you know, as soon as you show up, you know that, oh, this planet must have birth records. What spake them? So Rom can summon his weapon from subspace? thought that was really stupid. I don't really even know what that means, but it's dumb. I do like that he calls the alien space scum. <laughs> Just made me think Rom must go around referring to everything as space something. Oh, it's space water. <laughs> Reminds me of the Jetsons where everything's like, ooh, space cars, Mr. Spacely. Anyway, uh, made me laugh. The son, when he's talking back to his mom, has a good line. Because his mom was like, how'd you know what I was thinking when he read her mind? And the, and the kid like leans back on his bed like a cool kid and he goes, is that what you call your perpetual state of confusion, mommy? Thinking? Thought <laughs> that was pretty snarky and pretty funny. The character design, when hy- we see hybrids true form, is not bad. It's pretty ugly, but it's kind of cool looking. I mean, it looks like a gross alien, so what else do you want, right? I like it better than the alien ripoff Nagare we had uh, last episode. So, yeah, there you go. The death of the Wraith looks cool when, when the hybrid kills his dad. We see him stabbed into the wall with the pitchfork and the wall cracks. Then, like, it's three consecutive panels. And the next panel, he turns, like, he's still in the shape of his body, but he's, like, a white powder. And then the powder's all on the floor in the last panel, but we still see his outline and shadow on the wall with the pitchfork stuck in the middle of it. Pretty nice little sequence there. And, of course, we get where Wolverine, I think I mentioned this already, where Wolverine can't wait to try his claws on a ROM suit. All right. Uh, And then a couple of things in issue 18... First of all, we start with the giant synopsis of the previous issue. But again, on page five, uh, Claremont and now Duffy are earning that consulting fee where Wolverine tells Nightcrawler he hasn't been able to cut this loose since they fought Wendigo together. So, you know, Mantlo is really using his uh, peers for some uh, notes on previous X-Men lore. Rom asks a question. He says, I keep running into these superheroes. If Earth has all these superheroes, do they really need me to come protect them? Good question. 
I would pose the question, if Marvel has all these superhero comics, do they really need one based on an action figure? I don't know. I think it's a good question. Again, we get a snick with no T. It's piss poor. We, we find that Wolverine says he has no compunctions about killing, and he can smell evil, so that's interesting. Then I, there's an ad here, and I was really surprised to fig, find out that Master of Kung Fu made it 100 issues. I mean, how many, how many issues can you go, Hey-ya! <laughs> Apparently 100 of them. So anyway, that was interesting. Oh, so this is kind of um, a variation or possibly the inspiration of Kitty's phasing disrupting electronics or being able to like manipulate electronics in a way. I haven't really had that yet, so I thought that was weird that this kind of showed up here. And they say it's because of Rom's physiology more than the suit, but then they kind of also say it's the suit, so I don't really know. Anyway, an interesting nod to a power we haven't really seen yet, so I thought that was weird. Then when the alien makes Colossus turn to human form, he says his expanding throat will kill him. I don't really understand why his throat is expanding. Is it because they're in the snow? Like it's too cold? Doesn't make... I don't think that's how that works. <laughs> I'm not a biology major, but it just seemed weird. And he goes to human form all the time, so it's not like he, the metal thing messed up his throat. So I'm not real sure. Then the hybrid gets, oh, for that, I've been noticing the last few issues in X-Men 2. And whenever Colossus is in metal form, you know, he's got those knee-high boots and his little undies. But his thighs, you always see the steel. And when he turns back to human form, he has blue pants underneath his red underwear between his boots. So his thighs are naked in metal form, and we don't get to see his fleshy thighs when he turns human. I bet if Denise was reading, she'd be really disappointed in that. <laughs> so then the hybrid gets rapey on uh, Kitty. His, uh, his new mission is he's going to make other race uh, breed with humans so there can be more hybrids and he can lead a hybrid army. But he says, oh, Kitty's a mutant human. I'm a mutant human wraith. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make Kitty have my child. <laughs> For, he says, his crossbreeding experiment. So yeah, he gets a little rapey. Luckily, Kitty gets out of there. There is a cool panel where he uses his mental powers to completely disable a snowmobile and shoot the parts at Kitty. The art on that's pretty sweet. And then Rom decks Wolverine. He's only gets to drop on him because Kitty distracted him, but it is a pretty cool panel. The art's really cool. So apparently there's a obligatory rule in Rom that you have to make a, a shellfish simile because uh, Wolverine talks about that the demon's going to uh, crack Rom out of his armor like you or I would crack and meat out of a lobster claw. And then in issue 17, there was another reference about crab legs in Rom's armor. Says, I'm going to break it like I break a crab leg. So I guess there's an obligatory shellfish joke quota you have to meet in Rom Space Knight. We get a reference to Wolverine using his Canadian Secret Service training. That's pretty cool. There's a really, the panel of the gun backfiring on Wolverine is really sweet. Just a really well-drawn panel and the color is pretty cool. Like, this explosion around the gun's all yellow and the Wolverine's all red-toned. It's pretty sweet. But how do these dumb X-Men lose the gun? Kitty had it in her hands. And yes, it kind of eventually backfires and falls out. I mean, they walk off and it's in their eyesight. Like, I don't know. 
I'm sure for the continuation of this series, it needs to be found by somebody else or whatever. I thought that was pretty lame that the X-Men didn't see it. All right, so Rom, the Space Knight, is based on a not-that-cool toy, and he doesn't look that cool. But his story's not awful. I was kind of surprised. Uh, The whole Wraith plot, and this story, I thought... Honestly, I thought if you just changed the way Rom looked, this would have been a really cool story. And if you make Rom a little less chatty, because there's a lot of the element of like, like just the whole subplot that there's this alien race and they've come to like be shapeshifters and take over the earth. But there's this one alien who didn't want to take over the earth. He liked being human and decided to live life as a human and turn his back on, on the master plan of conquest. And he falls in love and has a kid. And then the kid's like this evil powered hybrid of, of the alien and the human and the X-Men think that Rom's trying to kill a kid, so they try to protect the kid, but the kid's really trying to kill all of them. And I don't know, it's a really cool story, but Rom's just kind of dumb. So <laughs> if you just take somebody else and stick him in Rom's place, I think these issues would be pretty great. The art by Basima is pretty cool. That's Sal Basima, not John. It's pretty good art. I enjoyed seeing him draw the X-Men. It was pretty nice. Yeah, so I'm going to give... Both of these issues, that's ROM 17 and 18, uh, four out of six claws. Pretty decent story, a couple of dumb parts, and again, just not a big fan of ROM's visual. Oh, and because on the cover, by the way, on both covers, I don't know if you call this like the letter box or the cover box. Right under the numbers, you have the little box like on the X-Men, it always has the X-Men's floating heads. Oh, this one has Rom standing in, like, some space lightning. And he has laser nipples. So anyway, that's pretty lame. All right, well, that's, like I said, 17 and 18 of Rom, 4 out of 6 claws. Okay, so next up we have Dazzler 1 and 2. These are written by Tom DeFalco with pencils by John Romita Jr. Both issues are each by Alfredo Alcala. In issue 1, Glennis Wine is the colorist. In issue two, it's K. Klackazak. <laughs> or Klackazak. I don't know how you say that. And then in issue one, Joe Rosen is the letterer. And in issue two, Jim Novak is the letterer. Cover for issue one is one of those crappy 80s, like, painted faux, fake photorealistic covers. Maybe akin to a, a bad movie. Actually, it looks like a bad movie poster. Which, if you know Dazzler's history, you know there was an intended movie at some point. So maybe part of this is from that. The only part that's kind of cool about it is they have little circles and little heads of people. And Emo Nightcrawler looks looks pretty cool. So this cover is by Bob Larkin. Not that great. Don't really like it. The cover for t- number two, Last Stand in Disco Land, listing all the guest stars, uh, is by John Romina Jr. And it's not that great either. Uh, she has pretty perky breasts. <laughs> and we have a disco ball necklace that literally is her nipple. Sometimes I really wonder in these things, and they don't realize what they're doing, or if it's like an inside joke. Because on the cover, she has a, a disco ball necklace, and it's literally hanging down. And it's right on top of her nipple. And then in the little image at the top, inside the little box by the number, she's skating and her necklace is swinging. And it's drawn right where her nipple should be. 
So disco ball nipples, all the rage in the 70s. Actually, this would be 80 by this point, or 81. I'm sorry, wow. All right, so basically, here's how this story works. The whole thing can be summed up like this. Dazzler is hounded by thugs from a corrupt disco owner. She uses her powers with her radio, uh, but they shoot at her and they miss her, but they shoot the radio, so no more music, no more powers. Spider-Man swings by and saves her. She goes home and has a pity party. Uh, She calls the X-Men for a pick-me-up, but they're busy training in the danger room. We get her origin, which really isn't worth mentioning. Then meanwhile, on Asgard, the Enchantress is making plans for a cosmic rift that's going to appear at a new disco. At the Avengers Mansion, Beast sees an ad for a disco that needs a new singer. And he hand delivers the newspaper to Dazzler so she can arrange for an audition. She tries out after the Enchantress, and somehow manages to out-audition her. And that's where we end issue one. Issue two, all of the heroes come out for Dazzler's big gig, but Enchantress wants to take advantage of the cosmic rift that's going to appear at the disco, so she can take over the world. She obviously attacks, but luckily for Dazzler, there's a disco full of superheroes. Fighting, fighting, fighting. Enchantress draws up some monsters. If the heroes fight them off. Dazzler goes super Dazzler and shoots all kinds of crazy disco light and pushes the monster back into the rift right as it closes. Enchantress fails and bails. <laughs> That's my new phrase. Luckily, there was a guy in the biz who witnessed all this and he gives Dazzler a contact. So our heroes fly her to see the agent, but he's too busy to see her. So they break in and use a little um, persuasion air quote, to air quote, convince him to give her an audition. He obviously is dazzled and signs her on the spot. So in issue one, uh, we have a thing. I just wanted to point out that on page one of issue one, the thugs are in the disco owner's limo and they pull up and they're chasing Dazzler down the alley. And just wanted to note that the driver's name is Jason. I also want to point out that there is more jive talk in this first issue than you can shake a stick at. And of course, that's consistent with her first appearance, where she was also, like, super 70s hip. So then on page two, we get those damn roller skates again. <sighs> I thought the, having the radio was funny, but it says that she plays a Pink Floyd song, which I do not believe that Disco Queen Dazzler is cool enough to listen to Pink Floyd. Blondie? Okay. ABBA? Yes. Village People? And you got it. Pink Floyd? Mm, little out of her league. So on page six, though, we get a very cool uh, John Romita Jr. Spider-Man panel. Where basically he shot a web at the limo and is dragging it back. And I don't know, just the way it's drawn and inked looks really, really nice. I do have a question, though, because he hangs the bad guys from the street lamp in a big web sack, as he is prone to do. But I'm curious, if you hang uh, a web over the street lamp, does it still shine? Because there's still, there's still a yellow circle below the street lamp that uh, Spider-Man and Dazzler are standing in. Anyway, back at Dazzler's apartment, where she is obviously late on the rent, her fridge is pretty bare. She has a cantaloupe and a box of crackers. Uh, who keeps crackers in the fridge? I don't know. So we have a couple of cool things in the danger room scene. That's where Wolverine comes in. 
But you were wondering, since he doesn't really play that much into the story, he's training, and he questions why an angel isn't there, because he needs the most training. Cameron, if you're listening, I thought you might enjoy that, since you had commented about that back in issue 139, I think. So yeah, Wolverine has the same question, or same, I guess, review of angel skills, and he's rusty and needs training more than anybody else. <laughs> we get a repeat of the, the Wolverine don't jump through no hoops for nobody business. That was kind of cool, I guess. But there's a part where the phone starts ringing in the danger room. They're all basically like Scooby-Doo climbing over each other to get to the phone. There's this one part where Wolverine yells at Colossus because Colossus bumps him, but his claws are still out and he can stab somebody. Like, I know it all, it's kind of bang-bang, happens pretty quick. Pretty sure Wolverine can just snack those claws back in at a second's notice and not stab anybody. We get, oh, we get Jealous Kitty, kind of for the first time, so that's kind of strange to happen in Dazzler. Part of the reason Colossus is so anxious to get to the phone is because he's waiting for a phone call from Elizabeth, who he's supposed to have a date with, and Kitty thinks to herself basically how jealous she is. And Storm hates small talk. (laughs) The phone's for her, she gets it, and Dazzler uh, says hello, and Storm immediately says, Allison, how nice to hear, of course that's Dazzler's real name, Allison, how nice to hear from you. We haven't spoken since the Hellfire Club incident. Have you decided to reconsider our offer to join the X-Men and give up singing? (laughs) Not how are you, but hey, I'm assuming since you called, you must want to join the X-Men now. I knew you'd come around. No, anyway, Storm hates small talk. So then Dazzler puts on a Billy Joel record. Now that I can buy. That's probably Uptown Girl. Because I guess she's kind of uptown. I don't know. I don't, I don't really. I've been to New York. I love New York. I don't really know what's. Does uptown have a view of the Brooklyn Bridge? Because I'm pretty sure her apartment has a view of the Brooklyn Bridge. <laughs> okay, so we get her. Basically, what her origin was and her dad was a lawyer and her mom had died and her dad was really tough and. Didn't really know how, how to deal with being, you know, the mom's death. And he wants her to go to law school, but she wants to sing. And so he kind of says, well, you can go sing, but don't expect me to support you. <laughs> you know, and not just financially. I mean, emotionally as well. Yeah, that's basically it. So Asgard by J.R.J.R. looks pretty cool. I enjoyed it. Yeah, so, oh, well, back up. There was a gang that broke into a high school dance. Dazzler, and they were called the Blazing Lords. Yep, not making that up. Alright, so I do want to point out how much I hate old Asgardian talk. Like with all the, thou dust and whatever. <laughs> thou bullshittest when thy speaketh. So she has, the Enchantress has all these sculptures of gold and they're all sparkly and there's a guy and he has little sparkles on both his nipples. <laughs> A lot of nipple talk in this episode. I guess you blame that on the early 80s. I don't know. Oh, and the Enchantress also turns this warrior who finds her into a tree so she can, so he can admire her for eternity. And the tree guy looks pretty sweet. He's got like a hollowed out face. Looks like a phantasm kind of. It's a pretty cool art. And I kind of miss the old, old school Hawkeye costume. I know the new one is more realistic and fits the movie and probably makes more sense and is probably... If I think about it, actually cooler, but I miss the old one. And so when we get to the disco, apparently, looking at the uh, the maintenance crew uniforms, apparently the army 
uh, Moonlight's as Disco Janitors. Alright, so, number one, the art's not bad, but the story's pretty stupid. Actually, the art's pretty good in issue one. It's not so hot in issue two. In issue two, alright, so on the first page, there's Dazzler in the makeup room putting on her face paint. I can't put my finger on which one it is, but her profile with her hair. Now, granted, a lot of these guys looked like chicks anyway back then, but there is a specific front man to an 80s hair metal band that Dazzler looks exactly like. And I can't quite recall, uh, but she looks just like him. So she was like a dude. A feminine dude. <laughs> but a dude nonetheless. Yeah, and she has too much bedazzled stuff. That's too on the nose. But um, anyway. Oh yeah, so when they're actually at the club, there's a <laughs> kind of a funny joke where someone mistakes Colossus for Lou Ferrigno. Thought that was funny and kind of a nod to the the Hulk TV show, which was, of course, I guess in full swing by then, or was it already a syndication by anyone? I don't remember. It was late 70, early 80s, right? I think. <laughs> there is a funny scene in this comic where the Enchantress is revealed and everyone runs out, evacuates the building, where all our heroes run to the bathroom. They're all in the stalls, changing uh, out of their suits and tuxes and whatnot into their uh, costumes. And, of course, Peter Parker runs in and his... Gosh darn Parker luck. All the stalls are full and well, no one at this point knows his secret identity. So he has to climb in through the ceiling tile so he can change above the bathroom. Oh, that was kind of funny. Worth noting, the human torch thinks that Storm is hot. We do, during the fighting, on page 15, we get a double snicked as Wolverine is slicing his way through some uh, enchantress called monsters. Then the last scene, there's a thing where Iron Man, when Dazzler wants to give her audition for the agent, Iron Man is able to uh, pick up the radio through his armor. So he becomes basically nothing more than a glorified boombox at that point. Alright, so this issue, the art was not that good. I don't really know what the difference was between the two. It just didn't really happen. There's lots of really dumb looking panels. Alright, and the story is kind of garbage. <laughs> just not good. Good. And the whole, th- I don't know why the heroes are so excited that Dazzler can, can sing. And it's not very heroic that they vandalize a guy's office and then bully him into making him hear Dazzler's audition. Not really very heroic. It is just, it's silly, but silly in a stupid way. And I don't know. There were a couple of interesting points and the art was better in issue one. So I'm going to give Dazzler number one, one out of six claws. The only part in issue two that makes it worth reading at all is the bathroom scene with the heroes and Spider-Man. So I'm gonna, that's just not enough. I'm going to give Dazzler number two, zero out of six claws. Dazzler is just, I, I know Bendis has a crush on her, wants to make her important now in modern days, but... And she's just a crap character. I'm sorry. And I even stood up for her in her first appearance. That there were things about the way Claremont wrote that story that, that had potential. But I don't know where all that went. Cause this is just crap. <laughs> right? So anyway, that that's that. That's Dazzler. I'm, I'm going to quit. <laughs> I'm gonna, th- these books have made me quit podcasting. <laughs> just kidding. No, but I will say 
And maybe it's just because I'm doing it by myself. And last, the last really bad issue, and the last issue that felt like a chore was the Marvel team-up annual. But I knew I was having so much fun with Andrew, it was okay. And these are the first books in the flashback portion of the podcast that really just felt like a chore to read. Just, yeah, it was it was tough getting through it. And of course, it's early 80s, super verbose and wordy, so it took longer, and then it wasn't really worth it. But anyway, yeah, that's, that's Dazzler. All right, let's go. Okay, so last but not least, we have Spider-Woman number 37. This is written by our X-Men writer, Chris Claremont, with layouts by Steve Lealoha. We have an army of inkers. We have Austin Wyacek, Weiss, Milgram, and Springer. I guess no one did the finishes. <laughs> Orrin Tukowski is the letterer, and someone named Gaff is the colorist. We're not real sure who. The cover is by Lealoha, and this cover I like quite a bit. It's um, Spider-Woman breaking Siren's arm, and we have Juggernaut in the shadow in the background. And then we have a... Uh, a circle on the bottom with Nick Fury's head. Actually, I like the art on this cover. I like the color scheme on it. It's a pretty sweet cover. All right, so basically, we start off, Spider-Woman is visiting Nick Fury. She wants a recommendation so she can start. Basically, she's been a bounty hunter, and, and she wants to be a PI instead. And so she needs a good reference. We get, like, her whole backstory. From what I understand, Claremont's pretty new to this series. I think this is, like, his third issue, third or fourth. I guess he's kind of summing up and highlighting her origin. Uh, Basically, uh, she was held by the High Evolutionary for some reason because she was in suspended animation, and she lived with the Animal Men, but they didn't like her because she looked like a human. So she escaped and went to live in a village, but she accidentally killed someone with her venom blast. Uh, the village tried to uh, witch, witch hunt her, <laughs> and this guy found her and took her to Hydra, and she became an agent of Hydra. But they didn't like her because she wanted to use, to use her own costume. You're a great agent. Don't like the way you dress. You're out of here. So when she was supposed to assassinate Nick Fury, she saved him instead. And became Spider-Woman from that point on. We get a summary of her powers. She has a um, almost like a hearing thing. She, of course, she can climb up walls. No webs. But she can glide. Yeah, I think that's it. Her venom blast. Yeah, that's about it. So anyway, um, then she decides to go back home. Uh, we get a side... We have Black Tom, Marco Kane, and Teresa. And they're in San Francisco as well. That's where uh, Spider-Woman is operating out of now. She moved to San Francisco for a clean start. So we go back to New York. Professor X sees a new mutant on Cerebro, calls the X-Men, of course. And again, uh, they're uh, cleaning up the danger room from Kitty's mess. But this time, they're a lot nicer about it. Wolverine's like, I know you can handle yourself, kid. Actually calls her Pumpkin. So we see some of that bond forming again instead of him just being a jerk to her. Yeah, so Spider-Woman sneaks home and gets out of her costume just in time for her roommate to surprise her with a housewarming party. And she meets a guy, David, and gives her a bonsai tree. We get some, like, classic comic book soap opera stuff. Um, David puts the moves on her. They start to make out, but then Spider-Woman goes crazy. She hears this supersonic scream. So, of course, she has to play it off like a headache. 
She ditches David, becomes Spider-Woman. We find out Black Tom's plan. Basically, Siren, who is mysteriously related to Banshee <laughs> and has a lot of the same powers and the same suit. Anyway, she's using her sonic scream to set off like car alarms, store alarms, like everything within this big radius. She trips them all with her sonics. So the police are trying to respond to all these calls and they have no idea which ones are legit and which ones aren't. But Spider-Woman is able to use her powers to triangulate the pitches. And she realizes they're the mint where, lo and behold, there's a giant store of vibranium. And so Siren is using her sonic scream to kind of break into the vaults. They went in through, the, through a subway tunnel and they fight. She confronts Siren and Black Tom. Uh, she does pretty good. We find out that Siren has a much more expansive power set. She can trap things and make a sound bubble around herself and do all kinds of cool things with her with her sonic powers that Banshee can't do. Uh, then Juggernaut shows up. Uh, Spider-Woman zaps him, but of course it does nothing. He punches her across the room. They uh, fight some more. Juggernaut kind of takes care of her, knocks her out. And... When she wakes up, the police are there, and of course they think that she is the crook, or at least in league with the crooks. And then we get a promise of the X-Men to come next issue. So I thought the art was pretty cool. Um, her origin has cool elements, like the Hydra stuff, but the High Evolutionary I've never been a fan of, so too bad she's tied up in that. <laughs> so on page six, when uh, Spider-Woman is leaving Nick Fury's office, Nick Fury's... Uh, current fling La Contessa Valentino Allegro de Fontaine who sounds like a really bad stereotype um, well artist you say shading I say pubic hair we get a little bush on this girl sticking out from her slanty pants not very kid friendly <laughs> yeah so when she's flying back she talks about how more she just fought I guess Morgana Le Fay who can um, apparently control some of the winds. And Spider-Woman's like, I can't fly. I can only glide. If she can control the wind, she can attack me when I'm most vulnerable. And she gets knocked out of the air. And she's like, well, guess I better fly home. <laughs> After she goes, next time, I'll be ready. <laughs> okay. What a dumbass. All right, so this, by the way, is Siren's first appearance. Yeah, in Spider-Woman, not in next book. And she looks pretty cool here. She looks like a pretty evil little woman there. So, Kane Marco looks horrible. He looks like they used to draw mean guys in comic strips in the 40s. I don't know why he looks so just awful when he does. Uh, Professor X uses Cerebro as a map. I think we're pretty young in that development. I don't know if this is the first time, but it's usually like name tags or just little blips. And we actually see like a map lighting up. It's kind of cool. Very James Bondy. We get a reference to X-Men 143, or Uncanny 143. Storm is trying to salvage her uh, her plants in the attic after the, the Nagarai demon uh, made them all wilt with his, I guess, his coldness. We get another talk about a contact mission. So the X-Men are sent out to uh, to find the new mutant and to make contact, to reassure them. And when Spider-Woman is sneaking into her apartment, I like the night coloring. It's all like blue and black shades. It's pretty cool. 
So our landlord, who shows up to the party, gives her a bonsai tree. So I guess she's going to date the Karate Kid. And his line, he talks about how he's a construction worker. And he likes using his hands. Just as he starts to get a little bit gropey with Jessica Drew. And by the way, that's Spider-Woman's real name. I don't think I ever actually said that in that whole synopsis. But it is. And of course, she says she has a headache. He goes to get her some uh, aspirin. And they both run off. I don't know whose feet we see, but Wonderwoman has some really cool Adidas. Some nice kicks. But it's just feet. I don't know who it belongs to. I mean, they both have bell bottoms on, so that doesn't really do me anything. I like the uh, practical effects of the Sonic Scream. In addition to the stores and all the alarms being tripped, Spider-Woman comments that all the dogs in the area are barking and whining. Oh, plus I just, I think this plan by Black Tom is really cool. Like, if we set off all these alarms everywhere, then we can go rob the place we want to rob because no one will know where to actually go because every, every alarm in the city is going off. thought it was a cool plan and a cool use of Siren's powers as a villain. So we find out she's related to Banshee, but we don't find out how because uh, Black Tom makes a comment to himself that he hopes his cousin Sean never finds out about her. So that's, you know, nice and mysterious. Yeah, so the Sonic Scream. On page 23 is a good example. When she's blasting the door, it looks really cool. And when she shoots it at Spider-Woman, it looks really stupid. It's literally separated by two panels. You just can't figure out how to... I think he's trying to show the different uses of the screen, but when she shoots it at Spider-Woman, it looks like she's shooting, like, ribbon streamers at her. It's kind of weird. Like she just spits streamers right out of her mouth. I'm not real sure why the bubble of sound will deflect the Venom Blast from Spider-Woman. Seems like it would maybe cancel out other sound waves and protect her from frequency, but I don't think Venom Blast is based on frequency. Seems like that would cut right through a sound bubble, but maybe that's just me. Yeah, so I thought the art... Like I said, the cover was great. And the art with good in places. I really think a lot of it was hurt by having so many different inkers. Just never really a good sign. It was, I don't know, it was inconsistent at best, but there were some good panels. There were some panels where Spider-Woman looks really attractive, and there are some panels where she looks kind of ugly, and it's hard to tell. And one is not better than the other. I don't think that every comic woman has to look like a model. But I would like them to look the same from panel to panel. <laughs> I don't think that's too much to ask. So decide what she looks like and go with it. That's all. But anyway, like I said, I don't want to leave you guys hanging. So just a little FYI in Spider-Woman 38. She escapes from the cops, of course, but they think she's a criminal. And her escaping only makes them think she's more of a criminal. We, just like in the Rom story, our con- we have a contact mission gone bad. When the X-Men show up and it's just Storm, Colossus, and Angel, they think that Spider-Woman is a mutant. Not Siren. But of course they realize when Spider-Woman helps them locate the criminals that is Juggernaut, Black Tom, and the new mutant who is Siren. And of course they defeat them. Juggernaut escapes. Black Tom's arrested, but he doesn't want Siren to be a criminal anymore, I guess. And so he confesses everything that it's his plan. Spider-Woman's not in cahoots with them and either is Siren. He says he did everything. So he goes to jail uh, Spider-Woman's name is cleared, and Siren goes home with the X-Men. And we find out that she is indeed Banshee's daughter. Spider-Woman gets to become a P.I., in case you were curious about that. 
And because I know you're dying to know, the love interest with David Karate Kid Bonsai, Bonsai, is left unresolved. So that's too bad. But anyway, the story's not bad. I really like the plot. Black Tom's, I mean, the scheme. Like, his scheme is really cool. And, you know, the soap opera stuff is written Claremont style. And we get some of the same type stuff in X-Men. So that didn't bother me too much. So I'm going to give Spider-Woman 37, 4 out of 6 claws. Okay, well, let's wrap up. Okay, so I hope you enjoyed kind of this um, Wolverine Year 7 bonus episode. Uh, just kind of some random guest appearances and stuff to kind of round out the middle of Wolverine's seventh year. No, it's not nearly as fun for me or probably y'all either to do it by myself, but I hope that some of the stories uh, piqued your interest and maybe you'll uh, want to go back and get some. Um, I would say there's there's no reason to read the Dazzler stuff unless you're just a Wolverine completist. It's kind of the only reason I read them. I will say I didn't cover because I don't have, but I want to point out, and I don't even know if it's really... A comic, per se. It's one of the, the magazines that Marvel had. Uh, Bizarre Adventures. And Wolverine was very briefly in Bizarre Adventures number 27. It's a black and white comic. And it had, a, like I think, three different stories. And one of the stories was about Nightcrawler going to some weird dimension with the Vanisher. Because, you know, they both have teleporting powers, right? So they gotta have a story together. Anyway, at the beginning of the story, they're all sitting around the X-Mansion. Wolverine makes fun of Nightcrawler for watching a Zorro movie. If Batman heard that, he would come kick Wolverine's ass. But, I, you know, he's over in another universe. So yeah, the only thing of note I remember from that, uh, and by the way, if you want to hear a more detailed uh, synopsis and, and review, uh, the Danger Room podcast covered it much more in depth uh, a couple episodes ago. I don't remember exactly which one. I tweeted to ask them, but they never tweeted back, so <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, um, I, we're, we're different enough. You can definitely listen to both and and have fun with that. So if you want to hear what they have to say about Bizarre Adventures, they actually had the comic and was able to read it. The thing I remember from their episode, that I think it's the first time we see uh, Nightcrawler use his tail to fight. Apparently he sword fights with, with his tail. That's kind of the first time we see that, which is kind of a shame that it's buried in this obscure, crappy magazine. They didn't have much good to say about it, by the way. <laughs> so if anyone has it and wants to send it to me, that would be cool. I'd like to have it just to kind of complete but i don't really want to pay for it i mean i found it on ebay for like five bucks but i felt like that was too much (laughs) so anyway we didn't really get much about wolverine out of these little stories um he grows a sense of humor i mean he's always been kind of funny and snarky but this is more of him like playing around when he was uh, making fun of kitty in the danger room and that was an x-men and then of course in uh uh, I don't remember, was it Rom or Spider-Woman? We get kind of a rehash of these same scenes and he actually like really sticks up for Kitty. So we see a found some more on him kind of looking out for her. We get, of course, the usual, he's the first guy to jump into the fight. He's ready to cut loose. Um, that's kind of a constant through all of these appearances here on this episode. And uh, we get a mention about the no compunction about killing, which we already knew, but we kind of get it, get it spelled out. But... That's really about it. I mean, they're good, like, guest appearances overall, as far as they're all pretty true to Wolverine. I mean, Wolverine, where he is, kind of the guy right now, kind of the guy with the, just looking for a fight. (laughs) 
ready to take out some of his aggression. So, yeah, but we, we get that pretty much all these. All right, so let's wrap up. Uh, please leave an iTunes review if you want. Uh, the website has show notes and stuff. That's nickcast.podbean.com. You can email thoughts, questions, theories, what you like, what you don't like, all that, to snickcast at yahoo.com. Please like the Facebook page and... Um, we need more likes. We're doing really good at Twitter. That's at Snickcast. can use a few more uh, Facebook likes if you feel so inclined, if you enjoy listening to the show. Anyway, thanks for listening. Hope this episode with just me wasn't too boring for you. Next up will be a pretty uh, bulky uh, current episode from March 2014. All right, until next time, hugs and snicks. Bye-bye.